mind of non-clinging, the liberation of non-clinging, reveals to us the nature of mind, what it always has been as it is now, nature of pure awareness, empty, awake, and knowing. There's a third aspect, you could say, in trying to talk about what is basically indescribable. And as soon as we start talking, it limits. But we, that's our mode of communication, so we talk and we talk. Um, there's a third aspect that you could say describes this nature of mind, nature of awareness. And that would be that the natural, the spontaneous expression of the wisdom of emptiness, of naked awareness, the natural expression of this is compassion, a tenderness for all life. Joseph and I were talking earlier and he reminded me of a Tibetan phrase that expresses this, that talks about it as awareness as being ceaselessly responsive. So that's what I want to talk about tonight, this quality of compassion, of friendliness, of tenderness for life, which includes ourselves, as an aspect of our practice. I want to talk about some ways that the simplicity of our mindfulness practice cultivates, strengthens, and reveals to us the depths of compassion and connectedness that are possible in our hearts in this life and that aren't really so far away from our own experience as that little judging mind in there might be saying. Just let that one roll on, but don't give it any attention for now. Now, rationally to me, it makes a lot of sense that emptiness, this openness of non-clinging, of not fixating on any experience as being me or mine, to me it makes a lot of sense that the flip side of this would be compassion. I know it doesn't always make sense to people. Sometimes hearing about no self, emptiness, seems a little, it's a little unsettling sometimes to people. But remember, that's the idea we have about it, not the actual experience. Nyoshul Kempo, who was a, was a Tibetan teacher, said that someone who realizes that all phenomena are empty and who realizes the non-existence of self or ego will naturally experience spontaneous compassion for all sentient beings who do not realize this truth of emptiness, and so who continue to suffer through delusion and clinging. So we don't have to wait until we are, if that's even possible, not to talk about goals too much, completely enlightened to experience this. Remember our whole practice, our whole life experience is only this moment. It's only moment to moment. Anything that we talk about, any qualities that we speak about developing, the seven factors of enlightenment, or the qualities we speak about understanding, the five hindrances, compassion, non-clinging, it's all experienced only here and now in this moment. 
There's nowhere else to go. And that's been a very empowering and also comforting understanding for me. Because if I think about, I have to understand the complete essence of emptiness before I can experience compassion, it's a little daunting. (laughs) But if I can recognize in a moment that possibility through my own experience just in a moment, well, then it really opens up the sense of possibility. So you can see it, really, at times, in all of our practice. Joseph spoke again about uh, impermanence and how really opening to the ephemeral nature of our experience, whether it's thoughts or emotions or sensations, whether it's the ephemeral nature of our outer situations, how when we open to that, we really have an access into recognizing emptiness because we stop clinging. But also you can recognize how in those moments, even if it's quite brief, where we, we really get that time when you just really feel open to the aspects of impermanence. And opening to it means we're not in that moment resisting it or hating it or trying to hold on. We really just let go and see it as it is. We both appreciate in a very deep way, the fragility of life, don't we? But not like a kind of, oh my God, beating the breast, but this tenderness, this appreciation, because if life is so fragile as it is, the natural response is one of presence, of openness, of connectedness, of appreciation, just for this moment of life as it is. And that naturally extends to a sense of compassion, of tenderness for the suffering of ourselves and other beings that we come into contact with. Because we're so present, we naturally open to that. So we experience both compassion for immediate suffering, just the pains we all go through, but also the wider level of compassion that Nyosho Ken was speaking of, that's really referred to as bodhicitta, that sense of, of poignancy, of compassion for looking at all of us beings here, keeping running in these cycles of samsara, trying to find happiness in places that cannot offer it, looking for ease in constantly changing situations. And out of that rises a sense of, you know, connectedness, of a sharing of our mutual situation, so to speak, but with a real tenderness of heart, not this kind of, oh, you know, we're just such stupid jerks, more, oh, look at this situation, you know, we're together. And that tenderness then again opens us into further letting go. So it's sort of like a mutual supportive thing. The emptiness leads to compassion, the compassion leads to more letting go. Another way you might notice, just keep a a little eye out in your practice, how the wisdom of letting go can open us to compassion. Just notice in those moments when 
you're not really clinging to anything as me or mine, my experience, my pain, my great meditation, whatever. Just those moments when there's none of this me or mining, none of this clinging. Notice the corollary to that is as if the movement from tight, obsessive self-referencing to openness, spaciousness, connectedness with life, with beings. Have you noticed that? What I'm talking about is our our relentless, obsessive self-referencing. Have any of you noticed that over these days? Those times when no matter what happens, the first thought in our mind is, what does that mean about me? You know, somebody slams the door, they did it to me. You know, they woke me up from my nap, you know. It's whatever happens, it's all about me. It's exhausting. It's relentless. It's just wearing, you know. This is, to me, this is really when we talk about sankara dukkha, the dukkha of just ongoing, wearing nature of life. It's this me, me, me all the time. Sometimes I sit here and I just think, (laughs) I would be so happy not to be absorbed in this meanness, you know, anymore. What a relief. So notice, because we all have plenty of moments when we're not absorbed in this me, 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 sometimes we don't notice them. Sometimes there's nothing special happening except spaciousness, except peace. It also allows the space, again, for connectedness and caring. Nyoshul Ken puts it, he put it in a way I really like a lot. He says, the difference between the deluded mind and the enlightened mind is mainly a difference of narrowness and openness. In our present deluded state, our mind is extremely narrow. The more constricted and narrow the mind, the more it thinks only of itself, completely disregarding the well-being, happiness, and suffering of others. Conversely, the enlightened Buddha mind is one who considers the infinity of sentient beings rather than being concerned only with its own ego and individuality. Thus, the entire path from an ordinary being to Buddhahood is the gradual opening of the mind. The concept of growth is used here for the passing from a completely narrow attitude focused principally on oneself to an open, loving heart whose scope instinctively encompasses the infinity of beings. I really like that, that the concept of growth in practice is from this narrow, constricted sense of mind and heart that only focuses on oneself to a natural openness that spontaneously considers the well-being of beings. And that's important to, to really trust that this compassion, this tenderness for beings, really is a spontaneous expression of our wisdom mind, a spontaneous expression of awareness, of emptiness. It's not, it's not that we can't consciously cultivate compassion. Of course we can, and we do. And the Buddha talks about that, wise intention, which is really important. But to also really trust that if awareness is our true nature, our pure mind, 
then compassion, tenderness, metta is also our true nature. And there's no exceptions to that. It's not everybody but, you know, you. (laughs) I know they say that, but me, compassion, metta, I don't think so. No, no. It's just, if it's how it is, it's how it is, you know, for all of us. So that's why often the, the practice, the Buddhist path, is spoken of as a bird with two wings, the wings of wisdom and compassion. You really don't have one without the other. At times in our life, in our practice, one or the other might be more obvious, of course. One, you know, one tint of awareness, so to speak, is more obvious to us, and at another time, another one. But ultimately, it all comes together. And so I want to talk about now really practical ways that we can begin to notice and work with and also help us trust the cultivation, the development of compassion in our life, in our actions, in our minds. One way that the Buddha spoke about this, the place that... um, Our understanding and our actions come together, kind of the intersection, is in the second step of the Eightfold Path, which I won't go into the Eightfold Path tonight because that's the whole talk. But it begins with wise or right understanding, how we understand ourselves, how we understand the world, you know. That's the first step, not the last step. And that gives rise to the second step, which is what I'm talking about. Samasankapa is the word in Pali, variously translated as wise intention, wise thought, or wise aspiration. Those three different qualities. And so our intention or thought or aspiration is what gives rise to the next steps of the path, which are how we speak and act in the world our speech, our action, our livelihood. So right here, in this step of samasankapa, right intention, right aspiration, is the place that, if you want to look at how our wisdom manifests as compassion, as friendliness, as uh, generosity, it's right here. In fact, the Buddha's definition of wise intention is actually that. It's non-greed, It's friendliness, metta, and it's compassion. That's his definition of right intention. And the point I want to make is that this is what naturally develops and strengthens simply through the power of mindfulness, through the power of the simplicity, but steadiness, committedness of our mindfulness practice. So this intention, right intention, Intention, that sense of motivation that leads to speech and action, that moment, that inclination of mind that gives rise to speech, that gives rise to action. This is a really key concept, a really key experience in in the whole concept of karma. Karma means action, or kama in the Pali, means action. And what's interesting for us practice-wise in a way that we can, I find really helpful in my life. When we think about our actions, when we tend to evaluate whether that was a good or a bad action, or to use more the, 
the Buddhist terms skillful or unskillful, wholesome or unwholesome, our tendency is often to evaluate by the result, how it looks, if whatever we wanted to happen happens, if everybody feels good about it, you know, whatever, if we got what we wanted. But as far as the skillfulness or unskillfulness, as the seed of karma goes, all of the power of the action is actually in the intention. Because the result of the action is actually out of our control a lot of the time, isn't it? But why we do and say what we do and say, what states of mind and heart are motivating that is really where the power is. And this is the place that you know, greed, hatred, and confusion manifest, that lead us to speech and action that you know, gets us in trouble one way or the other. And it's also the place that metta, compassion, and generosity manifest, just here in this movement of intention. And we can begin to notice, not always. God knows you'll make yourself crazy if you try and notice every intention before every word you speak, before every action you do. So please don't try. But we can begin to notice in retreat and off retreat before big things that we do, before big decisions. The whole um, power behind skillful means, when we talk about skillful means in retreat, you know, learning to do what helps keep your awareness balanced, the whole seed of that is in the intention, isn't it? Because you can do the same action on succeeding days. Have you noticed that? Like, I'm really tired now. I think I need not to sit and go take a walk. Now that could be motivated from a lot of different intentions, couldn't it? And one day it might be a real clear, balanced sense. It's not wanting, it's not aversion. It's just seeing, yeah, I really am tired. Taking a walk refreshes the mind, brings some energy. You take the walk, that's the experience. That was a skillful action, skillful intention. The next day, the same sitting, and you have the thought, yesterday it was so helpful to take a walk, and I really just don't feel like sitting, but probably taking a walk would be really good right now. But the motivation and the whole surrounding circumstances are really completely different. And so the motivation now might be aversion, it might be avoidance, it might be desire. And so the seemingly same action really is quite a different action from the point of intention. You see what I mean? And that's a very simple example, but it has a lot of ramifications. So it gets really interesting. You have to, I mean, really interesting, not in the point of judging. You can't be looking at your intentions with judging. Well, you can, and you probably will, but it isn't helpful. <laughs> because we're all going to have plenty of intentions that are less than sterling. Because that's why we're here. To learn, you know, to see. If we were all completely free from greed, hatred, and delusion, we wouldn't be needing to sit here like this day after day, would we? So um, it's really a fascinating and very powerful area of exploration in our life and in our practice. And I mention it on that, that's on kind of the micro level, you know, a small action or watch scratching an itch, you know, or when you go back for seconds at lunch, or whatever, when you write a note, or don't write a note, or think about writing a note, and decide not to write the note, and why did you want to, and why did you not? And just watching all that stuff, seeing the play of intentions. So 
So that's on the micro level, and I'll come back to the micro level a little bit later in the talk when we can begin to see how the power of mindfulness really begins to naturally shift the habit of our mind, the habit of our intentions. But I want to move for a minute to the third aspect of Samasankapa I mentioned, which I said is often translated as wise or right aspiration. And I want to talk a little bit about aspiration and bring this into compassion. Uh, I was going to anyway, and then I was interested that it came up in a couple of questions this morning. So for the purposes of how I'm talking about right aspiration, we could think of it um, not so much as, you know, the micro, that, that little about-to movement just before we do something, uh, brush our teeth or make a move, just a small movement. But aspiration is sort of mm, an overarching intention. You could say goal, if you will. We know that's not a good word, but the sense of purpose, the greater sense of purpose or aspiration in our life so that it's not just uh, an automatic response to this moment, but having a clear sense, and it's something that I think is, is very, very helpful and supportive to take time to consciously reflect on in our lives, if you haven't already done so, if it's not something you do regularly, to really tune into what is really my deepest purpose, or what's my aspiration, So it could be the goal or the overarching purpose or intention, the conscious awareness of which we can use as a guidepost, as a reference point in the decisions we make in how we live our life. So that this overarching intention, if it's really unskillful, it might be that we just so focus on the goal that we we don't use the overarching intention to come back and be present. For example, if your purpose in this life is to die with as much money as it's possible to accumulate, I don't suppose one would say it that way, but that's what would happen, isn't it? Say one's goal is to earn as much money as one could possibly accumulate, and that's all that mattered. The way that would reflect in our moment-to-moment decisions is that each decision would be about which one's going to earn me more money. So actually, the overarching purpose would affect our moment-to-moment intentions. Hopefully, we will choose a a, a more... (laughs) What can I say? (laughs) A more enlightening, uh, a more uh, supportive, a more inspiring purpose for ourselves. But that's each of our own business, isn't it? The way this can function, though, in our life, and it doesn't have to be particularly dharmic, is that when we have a very clear sense of commitment to to what our purpose is, to what's really important to us, tuning into that in moments of difficulty or moments of choice, in moments when we're making decisions, has the function of collecting all our sort of random dispersed energy and allowing us to act sometimes from a strength or from a commitment or from an intention of depth that we didn't really know we had. It gives us uh, a courage sometimes, a strength we might not know we possess. And maybe if you have children, you can imagine how you will do things for your kids 
that if it was just for you, you would never have the energy or the courage or the gumption to do it. But when it's something for the well-being of your kids, that doesn't even come in. You just do it. I read a book a few years ago uh, called Life and Death in Shanghai. Maybe some of you read it by a woman named Nian Cheng, a Chinese woman uh, who lived in Shanghai, a middle-class woman, had a pretty comfortable life. And then during the time of the Cultural Revolution in the 70s, she, like so many other people, was denounced. I think, I forget the details, but, you know, for her bourgeois lifestyle, and thrown into jail. And she was pressured in many ways to sign confessions and accuse of things that she hadn't done, along with which would be accusing other people. And, you know, she was really physically abused, very uncomfortable situation, but she had this strength of purpose of honesty, that honesty was just what was most important to her. And she refused for, I think, six years to sign anything that they gave her to sign because it wasn't true. And she wouldn't accuse other people of things that they hadn't done because it wasn't true. And she went through amazing stuff, a woman who had never been, you know, under any kind of physical stress, you know, someone who hadn't had any kind of preparation for this kind of thing. And finally, after six years, she got very sick. I think it was cancer or something. And they finally said, let's just release her, you know, because she was causing trouble. She just, you know, would stand up to the guards and refuse, just refuse to cooperate. So they were finally releasing her, they were taking her out, leading her to the door, and just before they take her to the door, they take her into another room and go, just before you leave, would you sign this? And she refused. She said, no way, it's not true, I won't sign it. And they let her go anyway, you know, just get her out of here. And now she was living in the States when she wrote this. It was very inspiring to me both her personal story and courage, but more the strength of uh, a purity, a clarity of purpose, you know, that really is sort of bigger than uh, the moment-to-moment experiences. It allows us to let go of needing fulfillment just in this moment. It allows us to have a much broader vision of our life, of what's important to us, of what is possible. And by using this aspiration or our purpose as a reference point, we can really, in our life, make more, more intelligent, more courageous decisions. I know, I see for myself, when I don't have a sense of purpose or I'm not aware of it, I tend to respond to situations, just kind of knee-jerk reactivity, oh, that'll be nice, or no, I don't want to do that, or that'll feel good, or that'll be comfortable, or, you know, I'm in a bad mood, so I say no. It's just, you know, very robotic, very automatic. But when I tune into what's really important to me, um, which is really, it changes from time to time, what's important to me. So I think it's, it's good to keep checking in with ourselves. But to me, some aspect of loving and serving the Dharma, or of living an awakened life, different things like that keep coming up as what's important. And then that really informs how and what I decide to do. Not every minute, you know. Again, 
some compassion, some kindness. It's not like every time I'm going to go get an ice cream do I have to go into a deep dharma, you know, is this going to serve the dharma, you know, whether I have chocolate chip or strawberry or maybe I should, you know, have non-fat and that, you know, not like that. I mean, we can be normal human beings, but it, it can really uh, strengthen us, support us, give us a, a, a courage that we might not otherwise access. We can surprise ourselves. Another aspect of uh, tuning into this higher aspiration is that it's not always that we have a sense of I want to be X, Y, Z, or this is what I want my life to look like. It's very much as with Nian Cheng, the sense of the importance of honesty. We often don't know where it's going to take us. When I realized quite some years ago that that really I love the Dharma as the most important thing in my life, I had no clue what that was going to mean in my life. I never had the slightest interest in doing this teaching gig, but that's just <laughs> how it manifested. You know, it's not what I would have thought of. And uh, someone who also very much touches me in that way, I mean, I haven't met her personally, but whose life has been in, in this way of following what's really important to her without knowing where it would turn up is Aung San Suu Kyi. You know, I'm sure you know who she is, the leader of the democracy movement in Burma, right, who won the Nobel Peace Prize in, I think it was 93, I'm not sure, who she went, her father was kind of the, the Burmese leader of democracy in the late 40s, and he was assassinated. And Aung San Suu Kyi had been living in England. Uh, she grew up, she's living in England, married to an Englishman, had two teenage children, and came back to Burma in 88, 89, because her mother was really sick. And she came back to take care of her dying mother. It just happened that it was at the time when there was these big student uprisings against incredibly repressive, violent um, government that is still in charge in Burma today. Really quite, um, quite cruel, actually to the people of Burma. But she just happened to be there at the time that there were these incredible student, student uprisings and demonstrations, and they were put down just by kind of mass shootings, you know, by the Burmese government. And she became the focal point of the democratic movement to the point that there was a, an election, this, this repressive government allowed a, a free election. Aung San Suu Kyi and her party won in a landslide and then, of course, the government wouldn't let them take office, put her under house arrest. And she's been there on and off under house arrest, but really completely constricted her movements ever since. So for over 10 years, they've always said she could leave, but she knows she could never come back. And she's so important to the democracy movement that she really feels she has to stay. Even though her husband since died of cancer, she, you know, sees her two sons not very often at all. You know, years can pass. But what's interesting, that the whole point of this is that she really seems like, what one can tell from reading and hearing, quite an amazing woman. And this is what she's saying. She, she said, I never set out to be the leader of the democracy movement in Burma, you know. She said, I have very ordinary attitudes towards life. If I think there's something I should do in the name of justice, or in the name of love, then I'll do it. The motivation is its own reward. 
And somewhere else she said that her purpose is to purify her mind and heart. So having a deeply felt, but, but ultimately simple purpose, simple aspiration, and we, we don't know where it's going to go. We never know anyway, you know. But the power of, of aligning ourselves when we can, when we can remember it, to what is really, really so deeply true for us has the power to change how we live our life. And that's really, I think, what it's about, how we live our life, you know. The habits of mind with which we meet each moment of our life. This is where freedom manifests. This is where compassion manifests. Never mind how it looks to anybody else. Never mind achieving, you know, some goal people can recognize. And the good news, as I said before, really good news, is that simply through the power of of mindful presence, mindfulness bringing this awareness that is open, clear, connected, with no agenda, just what we're practicing here, moment after moment after moment. The natural fruit of this is the development of of compassion, of friendliness, loving-kindness, of generosity, of letting go. And you really look in yourselves, in your practice, in your daily life, in little ways. And I really know that you'll see how our intentions, our habits of mind, do begin to purify. By purify, I mean they begin to transform. Our deep habits, the kalesas, as I know have been referred to, of greed, of hatred, aversion, fear, of confusion, that's not inevitable, although it may seem so sometimes. It's not inevitable, but they are like deeply conditioned habits in our mind. But that's all they are, habits. As we practice, these habits really do begin to transform. The Buddha has said, he said frequently, that whatever, and I love this, I love this quotation, he said, whatever one thinks about frequently, whatever we're in the habit of pondering on, wherever we let the mind dwell, that will become the inclination of our mind. It's simple but obvious, right? So wherever we let our mind hang out, over and over and over, that becomes its natural inclination. So, in one way, that's a little scary. In another way, that shows us how mindfulness works, as well as loving-kindness practice. But I won't get into that because it's a whole other topic, but just repeating the loving-kindness phrases and you think nothing's happening. But just think what your mind might be doing otherwise. <laughs> yeah? It's totally <laughs> worth it. <laughs> That's just a little aside, a little plug. <laughs> but through the power of my, I was talking to someone today who was saying that over the last 10 years or so of her practice, even though there's areas she doesn't feel so good about her practice and it's not good enough and all, which we can all find that, absolutely seeing 
areas of transformation, of spaciousness, of change in how she lives her life and how she relates. This is just what I'm talking about. The habits change. And in a place where you would naturally have said, oh, there's only going through the food line and there's 10 people behind you and there's one muffin left in, in the past. Yeah, great, I'm glad I got here for that muffin. You know? And sometimes just naturally, you don't even think about it. You go, oh, there's only one left. Well, I'll leave it for someone else. And it's not like a big, oh, aren't I great? It's just the natural expression. Look for it in little things because that'll really increase your trust and confidence. If you're waiting to be Gandhi before you notice it, it's going to be a lot harder. Our habits change, and at the end of our life, what are we going to have left but how we've lived our life? The habits of our heart and mind. Last year, um, there there was a a big Buddhist teachers conference. It was here at Spirit Rock. Uh, Buddhist teachers from all the different traditions, uh, about 220 or so teachers, and the Dalai Lama was here. But the thing that was the most inspiring to me in this whole conference was uh, a Cambodian monk named Mahagosananda. He's, uh, I don't know if you know Thich Nhat Hanh either, he's sort of the Cambodian Thich Nhat Hanh. He's been a leader of uh, peace movement in Cambodia. He's, spent, uh, he's an old man now, and he spent a lot of years really working in the refugee camps with the Cambodian refugees after all the horrors of the Khmer Rouge and Pol Pot regime. And, I mean, there's really an unthinkable suffering. And now, last summer, he was a little, he's a little bit senile. He's not really quite knowing what's going on. And so he would be here, but someone would sort of be delegated to stay with him, you know, through the day to make sure he didn't kind of wander off. And he would come and sit here in the room, you know, and not really say much until the end. So what was inspiring about this? He was just radiating love and happiness and compassion. He just was, you'd like, you just wanted to go up to him and hug him. Of course you don't, he's a monk, you know. But anyone who would come up to him, he would bow to you with this huge grin like you were the, the happiest, most important person that he'd ever met, that he was so happy to see you again. You know, you felt like he recognized you, although I'd never met him really where he would remember me. Um, The sense of just all-embracing love. It was so beautiful. You know, I never saw that break. And at the end, as a closing, um, he was asked to come up and and give the refuges and precepts. So first he started off in French um, doing metta. It's sort of like, you know, something that was in there just kind of came out. But then he got, okay, English... And he went into the refuges and precepts in English. I just felt so much, I don't know, just sort of who he was. That's how he'd lived his life. And at the end, that's what it is that came out. So pure and beautiful. It was by far for me the most touching and inspiring moment of the whole four days. So to me, that's a sense of that's how our habits can transform, you know. And it doesn't matter so much what we achieve or what our life looks like. But we can really begin to trust this. And again, it's not like you sit down and say, I will now become like Mahagosananda. I think to myself, because I have that same kind of judging mind, fat chance, you know. (laughs) But we'll each become our own person. 
manifesting through our own personality. Yes, I hate to tell you, it's going to be through your own personality. <laughs> the sooner you get used to it, the better. But again, as I was saying, we don't have to sit and decide, I will now be compassionate. But to learn to trust that out of the simple act of this connected attention, this letting go of our judgments, letting go of our preconceptions, overcoming our fear and holding ourselves separate, to simply connect with presence, the natural expression of that is a sense of our unity, a sense of metta, a sense of compassion. So I want to read this poem because it, I, it really expresses this for me. A little bit long, but it's uh, by Mary Oliver called Singapore. In Singapore, in the airport, a darkness was ripped from my eyes. In the women's restroom, one compartment stood open. A woman knelt there washing something in the white bowl. Disgust argued in my stomach, and I felt in my pocket for my ticket. A poem should always have birds in it. (laughs) Kingfishers say, with their bold eyes and gaudy wings. Rivers are pleasant, and of course trees. A waterfall, or if that's not possible, a fountain rising and falling. A person wants to stand in a happy place in a poem. When the woman turned, I could not answer her face. Her beauty and her embarrassment struggled together, and neither could win. She smiled, and I smiled. What kind of nonsense is this? Everybody needs a job. Yes, a person wants to stand in a happy place in a poem. But first we must watch her as she stares down at her labor, which is dull enough. She's washing the tops of airport ashtrays, as big as hubcaps with a blue rag. Her small hands turn the metal, scrubbing and rinsing. She does not work slowly nor quickly, but like a river. Her dark hair is like the wing of a bird. I don't doubt for a moment that she loves her life, and I want her to rise up from the crust and the slop and fly down to the river. This probably won't happen, but maybe it will. If the world were only pain and logic, who would want it? Of course it isn't. Neither do I mean anything miraculous, but only the light that can shine out of a life. I mean the way she unfolded and refolded the blue cloth, the way her smile was only for my sake. I mean the way this poem is filled with trees and birds. So we don't have to go somewhere else or look for some special kind of situation in order to touch, to recognize, to come home to this this sense of vastness, of tenderness, of compassion for others, for life, for ourselves. 
really the best place we have to start is right here, right now, with exactly whatever your own personal experience is. We often think of compassion as so outer-directed that we forget it has to start, the only place it can start, is right here in our own hearts, in our own immediate experience. From Pema Chodron. When you wake up in the morning and out of nowhere comes the heartache of alienation and loneliness, could you use that as a golden opportunity? Rather than persecuting yourself or feeling that something terribly wrong is happening, right there in the moment of sadness and longing, could you relax and touch the limitless space of the human heart? Next time you get a chance, she says, experiment with this. That's what's so great about retreats. You get lots of chances. And you might notice them more than when in our life we just kind of think, okay, what to do about it. But here there's not much to do. So that's a real blessing because it gives us a chance to relax, to really touch with awareness our own experience of whatever's going on, and in that we can discover over and over again the limitless space of the human heart, of our own heart. The difficulties in retreat are extremely important. I know you think we always say this and we say it, you know, to keep you going, but really it's all fine until you get to the PT and the, you know, the sukha and all the good stuff. But really, where do you think we're going to really open to tenderness and compassion? Just by having everything nicey-nice all the time? No, the difficulties that we come up in retreat, and each time that we meet it face-to-face, this is really the place that we are touching the tenderness of our hearts, the vastness of compassion. So really looking at it as you go through whatever your demons are, How do you meet the pain in your body, the fear, your feelings of disappointment or discouragement, sleepiness, anger, envy, that judging mind, our irritations with others, you know, whatever it is. We don't have to have some really, you know, incredible, worthy kind of suffering. Sleepiness really will do very well if you're hating it, you know the pain about it, the resistance. How do we meet these experiences? This is really the place where our insights, our deep insights into the nature of suffering, our connectedness with all beings in this field of suffering, and the deep tenderness or compassion for ourselves and all beings arise. Right here in the middle of these difficulties when we can meet it with kindness, with openness, without judging. And one other way that this is really important, first, of course, by not judging, by meeting it in the moment. We're at least allowing ourselves to see what's actually happening, right? So we learn compassion for suffering because we see how much of our suffering is extra. For example, there's that twinge in the knee, and there's all the fear and aversion and future projection we create around it. That part's extra, extra suffering. 
what Joseph said his uh, yogi friend called the rope burn, you know, of holding on when we could just let go. But another way that meeting each arising difficult experience, whenever we can, with that clarity, that complete connection, that openness, it's back to what the what I quoted the Buddha as saying before, that where we frequently let the mind dwell, that will become the inclination of mind, right? So you're sitting here, and these judging thoughts, you know how you, it's just so common that we're just completely one after the other after the other, these judging thoughts, and then we hate them, and then we hate ourselves for having them, and then we hate ourselves for not being kind to them, and on and on and on, infinite regression. Now, the judging thoughts themselves, that it arises in a moment, is really the effect, it's the result of our past habits of mind, right? That it's arising now, you don't have a choice about it, because obviously, if we had a choice, we would choose not to think that. But it's out of our control. So it's really the effect of past karma is, effect of past intentions, of past dwelling is, you're a stupid jerk. You can't do anything right. I can't believe you did that again. You know? It's just what it is. Now, in the moment that we meet it with, ah, that's judging. That's all. Just ah, that's judging. Noticing it. In that moment, what quality, what intention is being cultivated, is being developed? It's not judging. It's clear seeing and compassion. And so each moment that we meet a difficult experience, just fully and openly, you don't have to say, oh, may I be compassionate to this, you know, just meeting it with that kind, non-judging attention is in itself in a moment of mindfulness. There's no greed, there's no hatred, there's no confusion. So simply each moment of mindfulness is shifting our habit, is shifting the tendency of mind. Our mind is not dwelling anymore in the kalesas. It's dwelling in clarity. It's dwelling in compassion. And so those times that you've gone through a long, drawn-out, difficult time, and you think, you know, you weren't perfectly mindful, you sometimes got caught, you think nothing's happening. And mostly we can't recognize in looking back how much mindfulness, how many moments there actually were when there was just this pure meeting of it, you know, because we expect something to happen from that other than just being with it. But something is happening, but it's on a level we don't notice right away. But we're changing the habits. We're changing the way we relate to life. And compassion and wisdom is strengthening. It's like learning to trust that more, even if it's subconscious. So it's extremely powerful and important practice. Once I was practicing in a long retreat with Sayadaw Pandita, and uh, I was in a phase where I could report, report we, he does use the word report, very clearly. It is like a report. You go in and report, this is what's happening, do, do, do. And so I would just say what I was noting. I didn't give any content, but what was happening was really heavy judging thoughts. But I didn't give any content. I didn't even mention that. But he has this way, I know Steve told a story the other night, he has this way of knowing what's going on, even when you don't give the content. And so he said to me, you know, some yogis talk to themselves on retreat. Have you ever noticed that? (laughs) (laughs) He could actually be quite funny. I said, yeah, yeah, I've noticed that. 
He goes, well, you know, it's supposed to be a silent retreat. <laughs> yeah, I laugh too. <laughs> you know, it's just his way of saying, you know, you don't have to do that. Silence really being the non-reactive mind. <laughs> it was a kind moment. He was, he was being kind. So on the level of our moment-to-moment awareness, both the clear awareness is cultivating our, our trust, our understanding, the essential wisdom of emptiness, as well as our familiarity and our trust in the heart of compassion. And the two really can't be separated. Payment children again. At the relative level, our noble heart is felt as kinship with all beings. At the absolute level, we experience it as groundlessness or open space. And they're both true. Kinship with all beings, groundlessness or open space. And so we start where we are our highest aspiration, our deepest purpose, can inform our commitment, how we respond, the intentions we respond to our life, to our choices with, in the present moment, in present moment situations. And our ordinary circumstances of life are enough. Gandhi said once that almost everything you do will seem insignificant but it is very important that you do it. And again, it's not like, okay, now I'm going to be, you know, Shanti Deva, who sort of was the ultimate expression of Bodhisattva, you know, the guide to the Bodhisattva's way of life. Very moving. We just start where we are. One teacher I heard once referred to it, compassionate action, as doing the obvious. Just there's a situation And given the whole situation, you do what's obvious to be done. There's no sense of amazement or major compassion. You just respond in an appropriate way. I heard an interview on NPR a few years ago with a young pro basketball player. It was his rookie year. I forget what team he was on. And... You can just imagine how for, for a young guy to make it to the pros, that's got to be kind of the biggest thing in his life, you know, maybe the biggest chance he'd ever have. And they were interviewing him because his sister had um, needed a kidney transplant. And he was going to give her the kid- his kidney if, you know, their types matched and everything, which meant that would effectively end his pro basketball career. I'm not sure why. It would, actually, but that's what the interviewer was saying. And the interviewer was, like, so amazed, you know, like really trying to build him up. What an amazing thing you're doing. You're so incredible. And this guy just sounded so crazy. What are you talking about? It's my sister's life versus playing basketball? I mean, what's to think about? Just doing the obvious. At this point, we don't even think about it as some kind of being a compassionate person, you know, it's just the natural expression of clear seeing. And it can start with these small insignificant actions, 
and just strengthen as we have more and more trust in the power of awareness, in the power of connectedness, in the power of clear seeing. We don't need to fall back as much into our self-referential protections of fear and desire that we can trust we can open to the world. And then it's like, as Shantideva says, he says, even when I have done things for the sake of others, no sense of amazement or conceit arises. It is just like having fed myself. I hope for nothing in return. So could we just sit quietly for a moment? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.